Okay, it's Vav Tishrei. It's the yard site of the Rebbe's mother. He passed away 45 years ago. 45 years ago in Vav Tishrei, I was negative 11 months and 20 days. So I don't remember the Levaya. I want to talk to you about the Rebbe. That's about it. Her life, I think that that's also a useful Fabrengen, although it could lecture you on tshuva and to learn from the Rebetzin's example and so forth. I, I figured that's what I want to do. First, some basic uh, aspects of her character. Understand, the Rebetzin passed away before I was born. I never met her. I don't know her. I know people who knew her. So I'm telling you really what is for the most part hearsay. Hearsay means that this was a court of law and a lawyer was arguing my case the judge would throw it out. But by Hasidim, hearsay is credible because Hasidim are very sensitive and they take these things very seriously. So first, I'm just going to give you some basic uh, definitions of who she was as a person. And then I'm going to push and go through a biography. I'll talk to you about her life, which was a very interesting, accomplished, and painful life. First of all, the Rebetzin was an incredibly happy person and uh, very approachable. She really was a rabbit. She loved people. She was makabal kul and besevi put in the office. She loved to entertain, to greet, to be the rabbitson. And she was genuinely concerned and interested in other people's needs and situations and circumstances. Um, and she radiated that. In other words, meeting the rabbitson was a wonderful experience. It felt good to meet her because you felt like she cared about you, what she did. She was interested in you, and you were not an intrusion to her. Well, she wasn't the kind of woman who wanted to be left alone. She wanted to play uh, Rebetzin. And I think this is a very important part of her character. Um, a little episode to illustrate this. There was a very, very great chassid. His name was Rabbi Shevever, lived in Yerushalayim. Rabbi Shevever came to the Rebbe in 1957 by ship. Where he got the money for that trip, I have no idea. And he came with his wife. Now, I don't know why the Meshav Engvi came to the Rebbe, but I, I have a guess. Totally uneducated, didn't hear from anybody. The Meshav Engvi never had children. And he had thousands of Bailey who were his children. When people lived in his house like they were his children, there was a fellow who essentially made himself an adopted child of Meshav Engvi. He says, Kaddish for him, and he his children after him. I suspect he came with the children. The Meshav Engvi was a very big chassid. A baby for sure, maybe higher. And he came with his wife for Tishrei, The next time he came was 25 years later, and the second time he came without his wife. They never had children, never. Um, they had a very special marriage. But they were, hey, mention. He came to the Rebbe in 1957. Anyway, the Rebbetson, who lives on 1418 President Street, now the writer of Kingston Avenue on President, would take her chair and put it on the corner and sit and greet people. People would walk by. Kron Heitzdem was very Jewish and it was also very diverse. It wasn't strictly Lubavitch, all kinds. And she would just tell people hello. The Rebbe's and Weber walks by and the Rebbe says to her, the Rebbe's and tells her, you're a new face, who are you? She says, I'm Mrs. Weber, her name, her name was Miriam, from Yerushalayim. And the Rebbe's and says, my son told me you're coming. This is, and, and she made her feel at home. This was part of the role that Edison played. That Edison was always in shock. There was not a place. 
If you ever go into 770's Vibershow, you'll notice that the Vibershow, in addition to all the other problems with the Vibershow, isn't a straight line. Right? At the back shoulder is a funny 45 degree angle. Right? Why is it had that strange? Because that was the Rebbe from spot. That used to be the front of the shul. So they made the Vibershow go on an angle so she could sit in that spot and see the Rebbe. That was her seat. That's where she sat. She was always in shul. Always greeting people. Another very obvious characteristic of the Rebetzin was she was incredibly proud of her husband and her son and infinitely supportive. She really... She, she had what to be proud of, but she was shamelessly proud of her husband and her children. Uh, I saw a film, an interview of somebody who heard from someone who knew her that she and her husband were in a perpetual argument. The Rebetzin used to tell her not to talk about the kids. Her children were extraordinary. The Rebbe and his brothers were wunderkinder. They were totally abnormal, super normal. And the Rebbe always, Rebbe's father always would tell her, don't talk about the kids, I am harder. And she would say, what do you mean? I'm a mother. <laughs> I'm very proud of them and I want the whole world to know. This is the kind of a person she was. And she was also very proud of her husband. As Ayid, his name was Shmerel Batumet, Shmerel Sasonkin, a very, very big chassid, who tells a story that the Rebbe had a 30-year grudge. A 30-year grudge. She was, he was a bocher in Temchatminim. And he was sent by the yeshiva to raise money in Yekaterinslav, now called the Napa Petrovsk. So he came to town. And where do you go? You go to the Levik. Levik was a Labavcha Chassid, a big Labavcha Chassid. So he knocks on the door. And the Rebbe opens the door. And this bocher says to her, is Levik though? is Levik home, and she looked him up and down like, how dare you call my husband Levik? <laughs> she didn't say anything, but he felt that she held that grudge. He saw her 20 years later, she was still angry. She wouldn't forgive him. <laughs> and when, <laughs> you called my husband Levik, who are you? And by the way, he was a big gone and a big grove and a big cousin, but he wasn't Levik. Anyway, one year, she used to make always a yard sack gathering for her husband, Kofov. So he was in New York, and he, he, either he was invited or he invited himself. And people sat around and he asked permission to say something. This is a 30-year-old grudge, a 35-year-old grudge. So she says, speak. So he, he starts talking about Hasidim. He says, by Hasidim, there was always a sense that everybody is the same. And uh, as a result, even big Hasidim were addressed by common names, not called rabbi and maron. And the reason for this, as he said, is because the Gemara says that kol rav mi bovel, all the rabbonim in bovel were called rav, kol rebi meretz those who had real smicha were called rebi with the yud, and, and the, the heads of the generation were called rabbon, rabbon gamliel, rabbon shilben gamliel. But then the Gemara says, godol mi rabban shmoy, the highest allusion to a human being is to call him by his name, like Hillel, Shammai, Reb Hillel, Reb Shammai, Abaye Rover. So he says, by Hasidim, that's how they treated their greats. For example, uh, Levik. <laughs> he was a very great chassid. P- people called him Levik, not because there was a lack of respect, but because God. <laughs> and he saw that she forgave him, but <laughs> he saw that he was able to play. She accepted his explanation. This is the kind of a person she was very proud. She always talked about the Rebbe with such pride. She used to call him Der Zunzel Gesundzeit. You know, we call the Rebbe Zul Gesundzeit. We call him Der Zunzel Gesundzeit. 
And her pride and joy was the Rebbe, there's no question about it. She was a very smart woman. And she had very good advice. Um, and uh, she was also quite capable. In other words, she could play the role of Rebetzin, hostess, but when there was a need, she showed incredible organization skills. The Rebbe once by Favreyan said that he was 18 or 19 years old and thousands of immigrants came to Yekaterinoslav. He says, I saw a side of my mother I never saw. She became an organizer, but not an organizer to feed five people. An organizer to house and feed 20,000 people. Yekaterinoslav was a big city with a lot of Jews, but... 15,000, 20,000 immigrants is a lot for any community. And that Ebison and her boys, that Eb and his brothers, organized that every, every pullet, every refugee should have a place to sleep, food to eat, a school to go to, with respect. So there, there was a chevre man, there was a, a capable uh, public servant side to the Ebison that showed itself when was um, uh, necessary. You know what else? She was incredibly makeras um, She was very grateful. People who did things for her, like the Rebbe, she would never uh, pay it off. There was always a sense of, you helped me once, we're friends forever. People tell stories. She came out of Russia. She was completely alone. And everybody else was running out of Russia. Everybody was in a very desperate situation. And not many Hasidim noticed her. Everyone was very busy schlepping their own packages and their own kids. There were one or two people, or three people, who recognized this was a very special woman, married to one of the great gdolim of the previous generation. The mukhtaneste of the Friedrich Rebbe, the mother of one of the Friedrich Rebbe's was, and they, uh, they took care of her. Years and years and years later, the Rebetzin and her son, the Rebbe, would have a special deference to these people because of favors they had done for her you know, when they were traveling. These are some insights into who she was as a person, her personality. Now, I'll tell you about her life, what we know, which is frankly not that much, but I'll tell you what we know. She was born in Tafresh Mem, that would be 1880, in Nikolaev. Nikolaev is a big city in the Ukraine. It's a long story, but the short version of the story is after the war with Napoleon, White Russia was destroyed. And many, many Yidin had no jobs and no homes and so forth. So the middle Rebbe got from the Russian government a huge area of land and he settled 2,000 families of Hasidim in what was called Kherson. Kherson was a very fertile part of uh, Eastern Europe, part of the Ukraine. And many, many Yidin farmed and lived very comfortably and very peaceably until the Holocaust. In over the 130 years, Kherson, or at least till the revolution, was a place of peace and, and uh, prosperity for many, many Hasidim. And the Rabbeim used to send them Rabbonim, Shoichtim, Mashpiim, and uh, Malamdim. The, this Kherson region, which had all these Hasidim, the city which was the hub was Nikolaev. In other words, all the Lubavitch Hasidim who lived so far away from Lubavitch, their contact with Lubavitch was Nikolaev. Nikolaev Rav were always Lubavitch Hasidim. And the Rebetzin's father, whose name was Amir Shleimer, was the Nikolaev Rav. He succeeded his grandfather. His grandfather passed away after his own father. So the Einikel, the grandson, the Amir Shleimer, became Rav after his age. He was a very young man when he became Rav. This was the Rebbe's uh, 
mother's father. So she grew up in the house of a Rav. In other words, she grew up in an environment that taught public service. Uh, 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 a Rav, a Rebetzin, had obligation. They had duty, they had responsibility. And uh, from her earliest years, she, um, she had these sentiments, she had these uh, priorities. And of course, her home was quite... Nikolai was a Hasidic Shtat. Nikolai was a, a Hasidic Shtat. Now when she turned 18, she married Reb Leibik. Reb Leibik was 20. He was two years older than she was. They got married. Reb Leibik, huh? Reb Leibik was the apple of Lubavitch's eye. As a young man, people knew that Reb Leibik is a giant. He was one of the closest people to the Rebbe Rashab who personally raised him. He was ascended to the Tzemach Tzedek. He was an Eloi and a Gon and a Tzedek. And they got married, and that was itself an incredible uh, thing. And they lived in Nikolaev. What could be better? Married to a tzaddik, living in your parents' home, surrounded by chassidim and chassidus. It was a wonderful life. It really was a wonderful life. And her three children were born. All three of her sons were born in Nikolaev. And then, after being married for 10 years, or 11 years, her life changed irrevocably. There became an opening for the Rabbonus in Yekaterinoslav. It's hard for me to explain this to you, and it's probably as hard for you to be able to understand it. Going from being the daughter of the Rav Nikolaev to being the wife of the Rav Yekaterinoslav is like moving from Yerushalayim to, uh, to living in Manhattan or Paris, but not the religious part of Paris, to living in a very, very, very modern, competitive, secular environment. Yekaterinoslav is a big city with a lot of Yidin. And understand that in Yekaterinoslav, one of the places where Yidin fried out was Yekaterinoslav. You probably heard about the isms. The end of the 18th century, the 19th century, everyone had all these ideas. Everyone was going to change the world. Revolution. Everyone, everyone, no one knew which revolution, but some revolution. You know, revolution. And of course, all those revolutions had one thing in common. No God. Moving from Nikolaev to Katinislav, it may have been an honor, but no human being in his right mind would have preferred it. In other words, the Rebbe Zahana, here she was, how old was she? She was, she was 29 years old. A mother of three children living in such a protected, such a, such a cocoon, such a holy environment, suddenly thrown into one of the most important rabbinates in all of Russia, in an environment where from every side people wanted to rip them to pieces. The community of Yekaterinoslav did not want Levi Gedrov, because there were about 20 factions, and every faction wanted somebody else. The Rebbe Rashab said, Yekaterinoslav always had a Lubavitcherov, it will have a Lubavitcherov. Levik came to town and took over. How old was Levik? Levik was 31. And people were not happy about it. But Levik was made of steel. He was a schneerz. Levik combined incredible will with infinite charm. Levik was the kind of person who you could really love and really hate at the same time. You loved him because he had such a personality. He was so interesting. Whatever you knew, he knew. He was better at your shtick than you were. But when it came to Yiddishkeit, it was like a stone, like a rock. There was no compromise. And all of a sudden, this young girl, 29-year-old girl, whose whole world had been holiness, suddenly, instead of being in an environment of holiness, she became the environment of holiness. This is where she raised her kids. You have to understand that. The Rebbe grew up in a modern city. 
The Friedrich Rebbe grew up in the shtetl Lubavitch. The Rebbe moved from Nikolai, he was seven. His brother Label was uh, maybe three or four. His brother Beryl was, I say, five or six. Um, so certainly the Rebbe had childhood memories from Nikolai. But the formative years were done in a very modern city that was going through incredible change. So the Rebbe would tell people that when they moved to Yekaterinoslav, one of the things that she agreed to, insisted on, they had a large apartment. And she made sure that she had a separate bedroom for every one of her sons. Three boys, three bedrooms. And they would sit in those rooms like, like in a closet and learn Teda 18 hours a day. You're talking about seven-year-olds, not 18-year-olds. Seven, eight, nine. The Debitson said her greatest battle with the kids was she had to get them to eat. Each one of them sat in his closet. Was, I'm sure they were not very large rooms. The world outside was burning to the ground, and her boys were in this hut, in this cocoon, with the king they which totally isolated from what was happening on the outside. And to her, I suppose this was one of the things that she did to hold on to her identity. She wanted her kids to get the same chinuch they would have gotten in Nikolayev in this big city. And, and, and obviously, she succeeded. <laughs> the rest is history. Anyway, she became the wife of Adolf. Now, of course, if you become the wife of Adolf in a city like this, you're very busy. And you have a lot of friends, and you have a lot of enemies. Sometimes you don't know who loves you, who doesn't like you. It becomes very, very complicated. And you need a very, very special kind of personality to handle a position like this. You know, you can't afford to uh, be insulted when someone insults you. You don't have that right. You're the Rebetzin. And the Rebetzin and the Blavik certainly had the character necessary under those conditions at that time to shine. The Yekaterinoslavic community, I'm telling you again, many, many people hated them, but loved them. They hated them because they were the enemy of what they called progress, modernity, secularization, whatever particular ism they belonged to, but they were just such wonderful people. And the truth to be told, how did the Blavik last in 1939? Rabbonim, like a lady, were arrested in 1929, 1928, sent off to jail. How did he last in 1939? And the answer is because the Jews and the local KGB protected him. The agents who were working with the government would, would let him know ahead of time that he shouldn't sleep at home because as much as they didn't like him, they loved him. You know, Rebbe Sanchana tells stories how these big communists would come in the middle of the night and make a chuppah. God forbid anybody would find out they'd get shot, but that I was going to make them a kosher wedding. And that, so that was the end of their Yiddishkeit. The candle burned. How far can you push it? He pushed it and pushed it and pushed it and pushed it and blitzed. Um, but he pushed it further than anybody. Who lasted until 1939? And the, the Rebetzin stood by her husband's side. Now, just to give you a technical note, they moved to Ekaterinoslav in 1909. The revolution started at the end of 1917. It probably reached Ekaterinoslav by 1918, 1920. But once Russia became communist, and everything became centralized, they cut their apartment in half. In other words, instead of this very large, comfortable apartment where each one of their children had their own room and there was enough space for Blavik to have an office and a, you know, a place to meet people, they were cramped together in this small little apartment. And uh, the Rebbe Tzachana says that when the Rebbe got married, the night of the Rebbe's wedding, now remember that the Rebbe got married in Poland, the Rebbe's parents made a chuppah, a chasana, in Yekaterinoslav without a chasana and a kala. Are you aware of that? The, Rebbe made, the Rebbe's father and mother made a wedding for the Rebbe, and the Rebbe wasn't there. 
They even made a mitzvah tanz. The Levik was a makubal. We don't do a mitzvah tanz. But the Levik did a mitzvah tanz. There was no chas but it was a wedding, mamisha wedding. The goy who had the other half of the apartment moved out, took down the doors, and allowed the Rebbe and the Rebbe's parents to have the whole apartment so that they can invite many guests and make what was a very lavish wedding then, minus a chosen and a kala. And the Rebbe Tachana writes about this in her biography, how for that one night, <laughs> they had their malchus back. Now, one of the events that the Rebbe talked about was what I mentioned earlier. World War I was a terrible war. And uh, I'm not a history teacher, but although fewer people, or certainly fewer Jews, died in World War I and World War II, in terms of history, World War I is literally one of the most important events in the entire history of mankind. If you had to put 10 critical events in all of history, World War I would be on that list. World War II, not necessarily. World War I changed the world. And uh, there was a front, there was an Eastern Front, Germany and Russia. And the Germans and Russians had one thing in common. They didn't trust the Jews. And frankly, I don't blame them. Um, so what happens in a war? The border moves, right? In a war, there's a fluxing border, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, as troops advance and retreat. Wherever the border was, the Jews were told to leave because they were afraid that they'd spy for the other side. The result was that all the Jews living in, so to speak, the corridor, which is, I guess, Western Russia and Eastern Germany, were displaced. And they ran away in their thousands. And they went wherever their legs would carry them. They went deep into Russia. They went further west. They couldn't live there anymore. Anytime there was a border, the Jews were made to move. But since the border was constantly moving, who had to move and to where was constantly fluctuating? By the end of World War I, thousands and thousands of Yidin came to Yekaterinoslav. Yekaterinoslav was very far away from the front. The Germans were never going to reach it. So the Jews found relative peace. But when you come to a town as a stranger, you say, can I have a place to sleep? So if you find a nice person, I'll give you a place to sleep. But multiply that times 20,000. 20,000 people is a lot of people. <laughs> it's an awful lot of people. Okay? And uh, Yekaterinoslav was a big city with a lot of Yidin. But as they say, Bifel the Shir. Reb Levi goes off. He was the spiritual leader. Maybe a lay person, maybe a businessman, maybe the community head should have overseen it. But this became Rebbe Sanchana's life. The Rebbe says, I never saw my mother like that. He said himself, I said, I never saw her like this. She made it her business. She, she, in other words, she mobilized the whole city. Every Jew in Ekaterinoslav had to host uh, refugees. Beds, clothing, food, schooling, ubechavit. And I saw in a, in a, in a non-Lubavitch source, in a Freya source, a Jew wrote a book about his life, and he describes the war years and how they ran east. He says, and Rabbi Schneerson's sons, that's how you put it, Rabbi Schneerson's sons, and how old they were? They were 18 and 16 and 15 or something like that, took care of all of our needs. This was one of those moments uh, where the Rebbe really shone. You saw... Not just how great a person she was, but um, how capable a person she was. Now, obviously, Rebetzin Chana, like a real Rebetzin, um, devoted her life to her husband's causes. I mean, you know, uh, what, was she a feminist? Was she not a feminist? 
she was a feminist in her own way. Her whole purpose was to help her husband. And when she was in New York, her whole purpose was to honor her son. I don't know if she was trying to help the Rebbe. Obviously, she could have helped the Rebbe. But to her, the covet of the Rebbe was everything. And she was her husband's right arm. And all of the public activities, the public service that Rebbe did was done by the Rebbe. I already mentioned to you about um, her relationship with her children. The Rebbe Sanchana would go into her son's rooms and have to physically rip them away from the commodity to feed them Russian. And she was, like I said, she was unabashedly proud of her children and of her husband and so forth and so on. Now, of course, the revolution happened and life became very difficult. Now, I want you to understand this, okay? You're a wife, you have children, and your husband is going on daily suicide missions. What do you do? That's a scenario. You're a wife, you have children, and your husband is every day throwing his life away for Yiddishkeit. At what point do you say, enough? Let somebody else do it. You know, many Rabbanim in Russia were great men. But their wives said, before the shir, our kids are going to be goyim, they're going to send you to Siberia, sit from their And a lot of these Rabbanim, after a while, you know, how much can a woman take? And I don't mean it in a negative way. She, 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 she's a mother, she cares about her children, and she's a wife, she cares about her husband. How long can a person be reckless in Soviet Russia? And that's what it was. It was recklessness. It wasn't a matter of what. It was simply a matter of when. Rablavik expected to survive the Soviets. He knew they'd get him. And he knew they'd kill him. And they did. That wasn't the consideration. It was a time of Mesiris Nefesh, as the Friedrich Rebbe had announced. And Rablavik certainly was a supporter of that. And you just continue to fight as long as they would let you. And you're the wife of that man. Okay? Now, is it fun to be a Rebbe's? Rebbe Sanchana never questioned her husband's judgment. And you're, li- you're talking about life and death. His life and death, their children's life and death, her life and death. And there's no way, there's no way we can properly appreciate that Mesiris Nefesh. It's easier to be the one being Mesiris Nefesh than to be married to the one being Mesiris Nefesh. If you're jumping into the fire, you know, that's one thing. But you have to support someone jumping into the fire and you're just there. And without the Rebbe Sechana, Rebbe could not have done what he did. And he did it under the Soviets for 20 years. 20 years. 20 years. And the Rebbe Sechana stood by his side, never questioned him, never said to him, you know, tone down the rhetoric, don't make... Rebbe could get up and show and make these powerful speeches against the government. All the time. All the time. Other Rabbanim were, were immediately disposed of. Rebbe had friends, like I told you before. But it was also who Rebbeinik was. Rebbeinik was a was a big person, and like I said to you, both of them understood that sooner or later they're going to take him away. But this is what you have to do. It's a time of Mercedes Nefesh. She never questioned him. Now a detail which you may not know, which really pains you. We know this from Rebbeinik's cross examination in 1991. The Soviet Union decided to do tshuva. Kill millions of people. How do you do true? <laughs> you find their relatives, if there are any, and give them the official files of the KGB's 
cross-examination with an official apology letter. Thank you very much. <laughs> but the Rebbe was sent, as many Lubavitcher Hasidim, by the way, were sent the files of their parents, their cross-examination. Many of these Hasidim parents died in jail, and they gave out the files. And in some cases, there are pictures in there that are incredibly precious. They took mugshots. The picture of a lady that we have now, it's not in this room, is from the KGB files. The picture that we have of Rabbi Levi, where Levi looks younger, and he obviously looks very upset. They took his yarmulke off of the picture. That's why he's so upset. The government of Russia took that picture. The, pic- the old picture of the Rabbi when the Rebbe Tzachana showed the Rebbe the picture of his father, he asked her, who is this man? And she said, this is your father. He said, he doesn't look like, I, never, I remember him like this. And she said, this is how he looked at the end. Because he got so, he, he aged in five years, incredibly. The picture that was printed later in the last 20 years was found in the KGB file. Well, in that file, they asked the Levi many questions. And one of the questions was, we know that you contemplated emigrating to Palestine, Israel, in 1920, which is one or two years after the revolution. And the Levi said, it was true. Why did you want to leave the motherland, <laughs> the great Sovetskis I used, the utopia of Soviet Russia, and move to the capitalistic, then it was British, state of Palestine. So he said, I was offered a job as a rov. I was offered a position as a rov. This is what used to happen. When you wanted to save the Gedalia soul of Russia, they would invent cities that didn't exist in Israel, invent communities, and send these Rabbonim requests to come and be uh, the rabbi of the Gedalia. And a lot of great Gedalia got out of Russia that way. They come to Israel, they would shovel coal if they needed to, because the, the communities didn't exist, the jobs didn't, but they saved many people. The Blavik was sent such an invitation, and he, he accepted it. And he started to file papers to leave Russia, and didn't leave. Why? Unfortunately, one of the Rebbe's brothers, his name was Beryl, was not well. <coughs> and although the British government was prepared to allow the Rebbe's parents to emigrate to Palestine, Beryl had to stay behind in Russia. And that's why they stayed in Russia. He was in a in an institution in Yekaterinslav where the Rebbe's parents lived and I'm, I'm sure they, the Rebbe's visited him regularly for all those years. Unfortunately, when the Nazis came into Yekaterinslav, the Rebbe's parents had been evacuated because the Rebbe's father had been arrested a year before, two years before. They killed everybody. Battle doesn't even have a matzeder. The Rebbe's brother doesn't even have a, a tombstone, which is why on Label's grave, Label's the third brother of the Rebbe, He's buried in Tzfas, at the foot of his tombstone that says, Ulu, ulu nishmas achoyse. Ayad. This is the Rebbe's middle brother. Beryl was older than Label. And this is a, a fact. The Rebbe's parents were, wanted to leave Russia, and they didn't leave Russia because of loyalty. What was wrong with He wasn't well. And um, they stayed in Russia. And they, they paid for it. Another story which is also interesting, I find it very interesting, is this. The story is true. Okay? I heard the story from someone who heard the story from someone who, who was around when this happened. If, if you're interested, I can tell you exactly how I know the story. But it's a true story. There's a new volume, Igor's Kedish, that has recently come out from the Friedrich Rebbe. And this is incredible. It's letters from the Friedrich Rebbe to the Rebbe and the Rebbe. It's a whole volume of Igor's Kedish only from the Friedrich Rebbe to the Rebbe and the Rebbe. Um, this discussions about the Rebbe's Shidduch. 
as early as 1923, the Rebbe came to see the Rebbe. It was spring or summer, and um, they were in a, in a resort area. They were in a dacha. And after a day or two, the Rebbe left, and the Rebbe stayed with the Friedrich Rebbe for a week. And the Rebbe writes to his daughter, the Friedrich Rebbe, Ich lehren energisch Hilchis Mendel, which means I am energetically studying Hilchis Mendel. He spent a week with the Rebbe, basically from morning till night. And they, they met. The story, the Rebbe's engagement lasted six years. This is 1923, they got married in 1928. Pay five years. Very, very long engagement. And it was a complicated engagement, it wasn't so simple. Um, one of the things that happened is that Rebbeivik, who was not sure about the Shidduch, sent his wife, Rebbe Khana, to Rostov to see the to meet the Rebbe, to meet Rebbe Tzinchana Mushka. She came to Rostov and she moved into the house. Now, girls, this is how you make a Shidduch. Okay, you don't go to a date to a hotel lobby. You marry a Bocher, speak to your brothers. You marry a girl, speak to your sisters. The Rebbe moved into the house and she watched the family for three weeks and decided if her son has a shakit in such a situation. And uh, evidently she was impressed because they did get married eventually. But one of the things which is interesting is right before she left, she went to the Fidi Rebbe and she said to the Fidi Rebbe, I have my husband's permission to agree to the Shidduch on a condition. And the condition is that he give me nadmi. That means a dowry. Money. A chasm like the Rebbe, how much money is enough? You know? So the Fidi Rebbe says, I have no money. I can't give you a chamisht. So she says to the Rebbe, I don't mean money. I mean Rebbe. Which means, she says to the Fidi Rebbe in 1923 or 4, I want you to promise me that the Rebbe is going to be the next Rebbe. The Rebbe was 22. And the Fidi Rebbe agreed. And the Rebbe said, I want to have it in writing. <laughs> and the Fidi Rebbe says, I cannot give it to you in writing. But I give you my word. <laughs> so the Rebbe said, how are Hasidim going to know? So the Fidi Rebbe told her the obvious, Hasidim will not lay in They'll figure it out. <laughs> There's not exactly too many choices. Anyway, this is an interesting story. Now, of course, I told you before, the night of the Rebbe's wedding, they push it, made a real chasen in Yekutinislav, and they celebrate. Freya people would talk, talk about that wedding night with such nostalgia. They mamish made a wedding, and they didn't allow the fact that the chasen and kala were hundreds and hundreds of miles away to dampen it all. It was a real chasidish levedik chasen, and they wanted to celebrate with the Rebbe and the Rebbe's. Now, in 1939, before Pesach, the Rebbe's father was arrested. Six days before Pesach. Rebbe Sanchana took matzah and she ran to every prison in the city. She knocked on every door, she went every officer, she says, I need to find my husband. If I don't give him these packages, he will starve. Because Rebbe's, Rebbe's father was not getting his Pesach. She found him. How? Nobody knows. And she got somebody who was, a, you know, usually a prisoner when he first comes into jail. They don't allow him anything. After a while, when things settled down, she got him a couple pounds of matzah. And she followed him. In six months, the Blavik was in six different prisons, bounced around, tortured, cross-examined, put on a puppet trial, mock trial, and so forth. Anyway, after six months, he was given five years of golos, of exile, that was retroactive. Meaning to say, 
he was arrested in April, April, April 1939, so he would be released in April 1944, as opposed to October 1944. As soon as the Rebetzin found out where she was, she picked herself up and she followed him. And she went to live basically in a desert. The only living creatures in that desert were mosquitoes, and lots of them. My kid asked me, are mosquitoes kosher? And the answer is no. So they serve no purpose. And uh, she devoted her every breath to making her husband's exile manageable. Um, she had to feed him. There was no food. There was no money. There was no water. And she made it work. She had a little tiny loch. There were people who found them. There was a Yid by the name of Rabinovich. Rabinovich. No, Yid Rabinovich. I forgot his first name. Rabinowitz. Who tracked them down. He was a Yid. He disappeared years later. He vanished. He was probably killed by the Soviets. But he was a modernika yid. And Mercedes Nefesh was his bread and butter. And he, he, he helped the Rebbe and the Rebbetzin uh, during those years. But it was a, the Rebbe's parents, but it was a miserable time. And the worst of all was the loneliness. That Blavik had no one to talk to. She describes that Blavik taking a Tanya and a Chumish and a Mishnayis and dancing a whole night by himself around and around in a circle of the day. Can you imagine? Came a sugar red. The loneliness. Um, Rebbe didn't have paper. Rebbe didn't have Svarim. But he had the whole tale in his head. You read his writings, and it's full of sources. And you realize that all of that was written from memory. The man was, a, was an actual computer. He just didn't forget anything. And uh, the Rebbe made him ink. She would go out into the field and collect berries and buds and boil them up and make ink. I don't know if you've ever seen the originals of Rebbeinik's notes. You have fluorescent pink and fluorescent, the most beautiful colors. Just you can't imagine the Hasidic Yid writing with pink and with bright green. The stra- whatever colors, purple, whatever colors she found, she would boil these berries and make them ink and he would write on the margins of his photom. That's all he had. And most the vast majority of the Chedush that we have from the Rebbe's father was what was written when he was in jail on the margins of the pages. She lived with him for five years. Right before Pesach 1944, he was released and he went to the nearest city in Asia where there were Jews, Almata. When they arrived, Rebbe Leivik was already ill. The understanding is that Rebbe Leivik had Yenemachla. 1944, Yenemachla was a lost cause, especially in Russia. Today, I mean, most people recover from Yenemachla. And I, I want to say this because most people who have Yenemachla recover. Most. That means more than 50%. And in some cases, it's as much as 80 and 90%. The world, every day, there's new medicines. And you have to know the good news, not just the bad news, for heaven's sakes. Um, but then there was a death sentence. And a doctor examined him. And the doctor, of course, right away realized that he's very sick. And uh, he put him on a liquid diet. In other words, keep him alive as long as possible. Eat broccoli and water. And he sees matzah and wine and mother and chadesis and chadesis and kata for Pesach. So he tells Rebbeinik, you cannot eat that. So Rebbeinik says to him, that's not food. <laughs> that's mitzvah. There's nothing to talk about. Um, he lived five months in Almata. The community loved him and respected him, and they watched him die. There's the famous story he went to Shul and Shvuis and he gathered all the kids together. He spoke to them about Mr. Snefesh. 
And the story which I heard from Mrs. Itkin, it's not such a widely known story, but it's an incredible story. Uh, there's a Raskin who lives in London, David Raskin's older brother. They live in Alatown. He was, must have been 18, 19. And in Russia, they were looking for male bodies. You know what male bodies were called in those days? Bullet catchers. When the bullet catches four, you need more. They're, people were dying like flies in the Russian army. Anyway, it was Erev Tishabov. In other words, 11 days while Levi passes away. And his mother gave him food to bring to the Rebbe's parents to pay for Tishabov before and after. He comes into the house, let's say it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and Levi asks him his name. So he tells him his name. So he starts explaining up Kabbalah his name. Kabbalah, Kabbalah, Levi, good Kabbalah was never ending. And the man doesn't stop talking. It's 4.30, it's 5 o'clock, it's 5.30, and he's talking. I don't know if this young man, Raskin, understands one word, but that he had. And eventually, the Rebbe goes over to her husband and says, with all due respect to your Kabbalah, this guy's got to eat. It's almost Tishabov. And he just ignores it, keeps talking. He talks into Tishabov. He must talk three or four hours. By the time he let it know, it was nine o'clock at night, he couldn't eat anything. So the Rebbe didn't eat, Rebbe Leivik didn't eat, and he didn't eat. Anyway, he comes home. He walks into the house, and his mother falls on his neck and hugs him and kisses him and like it says, what happened? They came to take him to the front. The believe he pushed to save his life with the Kabbalah. <laughs> he pushed to save his life. He passed away Chafov. I want to tell you one story. It's a powerful story. And the story was told in 1991 by the woman with whom it happened. Her name was Klubgan. She lived in Yekaterinoslav. I'm sorry, she lived in Almata. And when Ablevi passed away, everybody came. The whole, all the Yidin came to the house. Obviously, the Rebbe Sechana was devastated. I mean, after all five years of Golas, and then this is how it ends. The Ablevi was only 66. And he was strong enough to live 100 years. He was a liar. They ruined him. They destroyed him. They killed him. She was very upset. And uh, she walked into the house, this girl, a Russian, a Babacha girl, but she was very Russianized. And she starts screaming. Becomes a star, it's like Shrayim. And the Rebbe Sanchana turns to her. And the Rebbe Sanchana was the Avela. Yeah? She lost her husband and says to her, which means in American, Jews don't get hysterical. Period. Any type of hysteria. Calm down. It's not a terrible, but Jews don't get hysterical. The Blaybook was buried in Almata. And over the years, there have been a number of people who saw to it that his tzin shouldn't be desecrated. And the Rebbe was very appreciative of these people, and he honored them, and so forth. And she went home. She came back to Yekaterinoslav. The war wasn't over yet, but the Russian front had already moved west. In other words, the Germans were retreating. And uh, what she found was devastating. She had left a huge, huge library, her husband's library, incredible library as far as. She came back and she found out two things. She asked the Yidin to look after the library. So one Yid took half of the library, put them into crates, buried them in the ground. The Russians built a skyscraper, an apartment building directly on top of those books. They're still laying there. The other half of the library, a Russian family moved into her apartment and used it for firewood. That was exactly the news she needed. It was very, very upsetting. As the war ended, she moved to Moscow she, she was connected with the Lubavitchers. They found out there's a way for her to leave. And of course, they helped to leave. She was a free to Machtenis, the Blavik's wife, and so forth. She came out of Russia alone, old, sad, with two chimadanas, with two valises. That's all she had in the world. 
she, she was in the camps in Germany, and there was a woman, Rebison uh, Schmuckler, she had three last names, Schmuckler, Feichen, and uh, uh, and Ushpal. She, she took care of the Rebison. She took care of him physically, she washed her. And years, years later, the Rebbe would always tell her, you're different. <laughs> because she, she took care of the Rebison. At a time that most people literally couldn't find time for her. Eventually she made it to Paris, and the Rebbe came to pick her up. The Rebbe spent three months in Paris. The meeting between her, the Rebbe and his mother, they went into a room alone. Must have been incredible. I mean, there was so much to say. So much had happened. I heard once, I don't know if it's true, that the Rebbe once told his mother, I'll never forgive myself for leaving you behind in Russia. That's what I heard. I don't know if it's true. It took the Rebbe some three months to be allowed to come into America. And there's different reasons that are given. Bottom line is, Nebuchadnezzar stayed with his mother and traveled back to New York with her, got her an apartment. And the last 17 years of her life were really the pride years. When she got here, she was the Mokhatanista, the Friedrich Ebbets Mokhatanista. So Shabbos and Yom Tif, she was hosted by the Nebuchadnezzar, the Friedrich Ebbets. And then a few years after that, her son became the Rebbe, and now she was the mother of royalty. And she played the role of Rebbetson Perfectly, and the last, as miserable, as difficult as her life had been, the end of her life were years of just incredible pride, incredible joy. A couple of little details. I know that I'm stealing your time, but I don't feel guilty about it. I'm sorry to tell you. Um, the Rebbe showed up almost an hour late to the Fabrengen of his Kabbalah Sunnisias. Fabrengen was called at 8:30. You try to it off. The Rebbe showed up 9:20. Where was he? He was with his mother. He went to see his mother the night he became an Rebbe and spent a very long time. We all want to know what they discussed that night. But they weren't talking about the weather. <laughs> Logic has it that the Rebbe's had things to tell the Rebbe that you heard from the Rebbe's father. But the Rebbe's father always used to tell people, my son is the son of the Friedrich Rebbe and he's the next Rebbe. Now the worst thing you can tell any chassid is that my son is the next Rebbe because every Rebbe is going to live forever and be Mashiach. And they hated him for it, but he was very proud. His son is the son-in-law of the Rebbe Hayat and the next Rebbe. Um, um, she was always, I told you before, she was always in 770. She was always around. Every person who got married in those years would go into the Rebbe's for a bracha. And she, was, she hosted people. She was, you know, a couple of little anecdotes. I'm just going to take a couple more minutes. A yid who was quite close to the Rebison told the following story. The Rebbe would visit the Rebison every single day. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Shabbos, including Roshani and Kippur. Every day the Rebbe went to see his mother. Sometimes the visit lasted a minute. Sometimes it lasted 15 minutes or half an hour, but every day he went to see his mother. Every single day. So when the Rebbe came, whoever was in the house had to scramble. They had to run out or hide in the other room. There was a Yid who, I don't know what his chus was, but the Rebbe said, it's okay if you stay. The Rebbe came in, and there was a game going on. The Rebbe was very busy. But he wanted to honor his mother. The Rebbe wanted to allow her son to honor him because of what he wanted. But the Rebbe also knew that he was very busy. So she was very happy to find excuses to get him to leave right away. You understand? He came to see her, and she was saying goodbye. 
not Chasham, she didn't care about his visits, but she knew that these visits were costly. So he wanted to stay, and she was encouraging him to leave. And uh, so when he would walk in, and there were guests, she would say, I have guests, yeah, I'll see you tomorrow, you know. So the Rebbe walked in, and this Bach, it was a Bach, was there, and the Rebbe stayed a minute in the apartment. And then he said, I see you have company, I'll leave, and he started walking out. But as he's walking out of the door, he was straightening the chairs at the table. He was straightening, as he walked out of the door, he was straightening the chairs along the table, and he left. And the Rebbe said to this Bach, do you see what my son just did? He was straightening the chairs. Do you want to know why? Listen to this. She says, since his bar mitzvah, he's never turned his back to me. Never turned his back to his mother. And he doesn't know that I know. So every time he leaves, by straightening the chairs, he's making it look natural that he's not turning around. That's amazing. That's called Kibbutz Avahim. This is a story. Now to make a long story short, she passed away Vav Tishrei. Rosh Hashanah, she was in Shul. Six days before, she was in Shul. And she said to Battle Eunuch, she says, I went to Shul. I'm happy I went. Because the Tkiyas was so good. <laughs> she, the Rebbe's Tkiyas. And then she tells Battle Eunuch, There never was such a Rebbe who knows so much. I'm not saying it because he's my son. I'm saying it because it's the truth. She says, I went to Shul. I got sick because of it. And I have no regrets. She passed away on Shabbos, Vav Tishrei. And, you know, when people like to be dramatic, they say, and it, it really is this dramatic, the Rebbe's mother was dying and the Rebbe was fabringing with Hasidim. This is the truth. It's five o'clock in the morning, the Rebbe had a stroke. The Rebbe and the Rebbetson, our Rebbetson, ran from President Beecher Brooklyn, New York, to President Kingston and spent the whole morning with the Rebbetson. They were fanning her and trying to give her air. At 5 to 10, the Rebbe left the house and went to 770. The Rebbe knew how sick his mother was. And he fabrenged. Shabbos Shuvi fabrenged. Dr. Zelikson was summoned in the middle of the fabreng into presence. He was even sicker now. He came back to the show and he walked over to the Rebbe and he said to the Rebbe, what is your mother's mother's name? So the Rebbe tells him her name is Rochel. So he says very loud, Chana bas Rochel and he wanted the Rebbe to know what was going on. The Rebbe finished the Fabrengen, Davin Mincha, and ran to President Street. Ran to President Street. He ran upstairs, ran to the apartment. Um, the Rebbe was in a lot of pain. She was very ill. The Rebbe went with her on Shabbos in an ambulance to the hospital. And um, he stayed with her. She passed away on Shabbos. He stayed till after Shabbos. And she was brought back to the house. As soon as she was brought back to the house, the Rebbe gave someone the responsibility to watch the house, that nobody should take anything, because Hasidim had sticky hands. And uh, the next day was the Rebbe's Levaya, obviously. The Rebbe said Kaddish for his mother for a whole year. And uh, that was a very interesting year. The Rebbe Fabreng every single Shabbos. Every Shabbos. Didn't miss Shabbos. And that's when the Rebbe introduced Rashi Sichas. The Rashi Sichas were the Rebbe's schus, his mother. The Rebbe did that for his mother, and he continued it for many, for what, almost thirty, for a very long time, uh, more than twenty years. Um, and uh, the Rebbe missed his mother, and I, from what I understand, he actually uh, said as much. And the ticket is, these people, they lived in such a way that we can still benefit from their lives. So I didn't give you a lecture on tshuva. I told you stories, but I think 
it was quite useful. Well, I'm going to see my table to all of you. Thank you.